Philippians 3, 1 to 11 is tonight's reading. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Forsyth, uh, and it's my great privilege to be uh, the vicar at St. Jude, which is like a senior minister, and an even greater privilege to open God's word with you this afternoon as we look at this passage together. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was kind of completely out of the blue. This is a true story, by the way. It's not one of those things you think, oh, the minister's making it up. I'm saying that now because you'll think, no way. Uh, out of the blue, uh, I was approached to both write and star in a documentary about the life of Jesus. And this is what I pictured that I would be doing. I was going to be sent overseas for six to eight weeks around Greece, around Turkey, around Israel. There would be a budget, there would be a crew. I was very excited. I was flattered and agreed with much of what was said about my potential gifts in this area and experience. Though I had to admit that as the conversation went on, there were references to things that, in my recollection anyway, I don't recall doing. Certain PhDs that I hadn't completed or even started. Uh, the life that was portrayed to me by this, uh, this person wanting my advice or wanting to be the writer and director and star in this documentary referred to an entirely, would seem, different life. And then there was this awkward pause on the phone. And the person said... You are the historian and author John Dixon. <laughs> and I said, first name's the same. Uh, no, I'm John Forsyth. Second awkward pause. Ah, sorry. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and they hung up on me. For a moment I was excited, but I never... I always wondered, what, what, what on earth were they thinking? Well, the reality was... What they were thinking was there's actually confusion on the resume they had received. Uh, John Dixon, John Forsyth, yes, I do know John quite well actually, but we are definitely not the same person and our achievements vary greatly. 
But when we look at a resume, what we see on a resume is basically a list of your merits or your achievements. And my experience is we only put the positive things down. We tend not to put the negative things down in our achievements. Uh, the reason we're doing is we, we want to kind of paint a picture of ourselves that says, behold my magnificence, <laughs> to some extent. Uh, and the reason we do that is our resumes are all about getting into something. You produce a resume either to get into a, a certain study course or to get into a certain job or to get a promotion. That is, a resume is a list of your achievements with the intention and goal, not just of saying, here I am, but this is why you should employ me. This is why I should do that PhD, or this is why I should go to your, your course. That's its purpose. And I think, generally speaking, most of us have two resumes. Now, one is that written resume uh, that has a list of your qualifications and your experience, uh, the kind of thing that I've been speaking about. But I think all of us also have what I call an internal or a spiritual resume. Things that we, we point to and say, this is why I'm valuable. This defines me as a person of value. This makes me valuable to myself and to other people and to God. This is why people should have a relationship with me as a friend or something else. It's because of these characters and these abilities that I have. It's, it's the things that gives us our confidence or how we judge ourselves. And sometimes we can kind of boast in them if we're kind of are feeling positive, or on the other side of things, feel quite down if they're not quite up to scratch. It's our kind of spiritual resume. And often we use that spiritual resume to work out how our relationship with God is going. I turned up to church today during a long weekend. That goes on my spiritual resume. I laughed at the vicar's jokes. More points for your resume. I then fell asleep for the rest of the sermon you lose some point. That, that kind of thing. And I'm spiritually up, I'm feeling God's presence. And so I want to do a, li a little bit of a, uh, a thinking quiz. So I have a slide here on the next one. Uh, it should be a picky one. There it is. I want you to rate right now. So uh, this is in if you're a writing down person, you can write down. If you're a thinky type person, feel free to think. Uh, how would you rate your relationship with God? Not those customer feedback surveys you get, but your relationship with God. Excellent, good, average, poor, or you can choose your own adjective to describe it. And secondly, why would you give that rating? Why would you give that rating? You know, you've spent lots of time praying recently. You haven't been spending lots of time praying. Whatever it is, kind of think through those things. That's kind of your spiritual resume. Okay. And what I want to do is once you've done those two things, just hold on to it either in your brain or on a bit of paper. We're going to come back to that. What I'm going to do is see that Paul actually addresses this very issue in Philippians chapter 3. He looks at that kind of spiritual resume, and he actually will share with us, we'll see a bit later on, his own spiritual resume, which is, fair to say, quite impressive. But he starts with a very different tract, with a warning to this church. And we're picking up in verse 2. And it's, it's not in the most polite language, so there's a bit of a language warning uh, for those who are easily offended. Uh, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God in, by, his, by, the, by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. 
Uh, what's really interesting is actually in the original language in, in the Greek there, Paul says watch out three times. He actually says, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evildoers, watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. He's really keen that we and the Philippians watch out. And when we emphasise things by repetition, it means that it's quite important. So Paul's really keen that this church watches, uh, watches out. And dogs, by the way, isn't a nice labradoodle type thing. It's, um, no, it's, it's an it's a insult, as it would be now, if someone said, you dog. You dog. So why is Paul getting, and to be fair, it is quite aggressive language, isn't it? Why is he so fired up? He's not saying, just keep, keep an eye out for, you know, if not, if just, no, he's saying, watch out, watch out, watch out. And what he's asking these, these people to watch out for is what we often refer to now as Judaizers. We read about this in Acts and other parts of Scripture. And these are Jewish Christians who not just kept the Jewish law and worshipped Jesus as the Messiah, they were vocal and adamant that if a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, wanted to become a Christian, they had to become a Jew first. And becoming a Jew meant, if you're a man, becoming circumcised. And so they were saying to people, well, it's great that you want to become a Christian, but you need, in fact, you must be circumcised or you can't be a Christian. And that's the people that Paul is speaking quite aggressively against. He calls them kind of mutilators of the flesh. It's, it's, it's a deliberate phrase, characterising their position. And notice in verse 3, Paul's response to this group. He says, no, no, for it is we who are the circumcision. Forget, forget that crowd. And what Paul is doing here is reminding the church that circumcision, which is in the Old Testament indeed, pointed to a spiritual reality that was far more important than the physical act. It was a symbol of a heart that was committed in love and service of God. And we see this language all through the Old Testament. Time limits the amount of Old Testament references I can give you, so I'm going to just give you one here. But Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And what these Judaizers were basically saying, look, you actually need to have, yes, Jesus, but also circumcision on your spiritual resume to say, that's, that's why I'm acceptable to God. That's what their confidence was in. The confidence was in the flesh, says Paul. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. Jesus plus something else. And this is why Paul is so forceful. He, he's worried that the Philippian churches will have confidence in something other than Jesus. Not just Jesus, but Jesus and something else. In other words, Jesus is not sufficient. You need something else. And so he's adamant they need to watch out. No confidence in the flesh. But he says in verse 3, boast, same word as confidence, have confidence in Christ Jesus. That's his argument. Now, to make a really strong point, what he does then is he shows his own resume, and this is a bit of a flex, a flex against the circumcision guys. He's saying, look, if you reckon they can boast, let me show you how much I can boast. That's nothing. Have a look at this resume. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. They've got reasons for confidence in the flesh. Check out my reasons. 
If anyone thinks they have reasons to put circumcision in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's basically got seven things where he says, it's kind of a smackdown on these guys. Saying, look, circumcision, I was circumcised on the eighth day. There was never a time when I wasn't Jewish. I was born into it. My citizenship is of the people of Israel, not some Jewish, not some Greek who's come across. My genealogy, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which was small but very important. They were the hold the city, they hold the land around the city of uh, Jerusalem. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, that is, the language he spoke at home wasn't Greek, which everybody else would have spoken. No, he spoke Hebrew at home. He's orthodox in regards to the law, a Pharisee. Now, it's, it's not a lawyer in the sense that we think of someone who studies kind of civil law. No, this was to do with the religious law. And he'd been taught by the great Gamiel, a highly respected rabbi, the best school. Zeal, well, he was so zealous for God that he even persecuted the church. And righteousness, that is, building yourself up, having a right relationship with God based on the law as interpreted by the Pharisees, well, faultless. Paul is saying, you think circumcision is it? Well, check out my resume. Way better than yours. If anyone can have confidence in the flesh, says Paul, it's me. It's me. No one else can trump this. And then Paul does something quite profound. What he does is he's just kind of shown us the glory of his magnificence in his resume. He then completely trashes it. Have a look at verse 7. He's just talked himself up and now he's going to throw it all away. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things, I consider them, what's the word there? Garbage. Garbage that I may gain Christ. Three times he emphasises that word loss. We've heard three warning, three watch out, watch out, watch out. Now here is three losses, loss, 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 and to make things worse, they're called Garbage in verse 8. That, that's our Bible translators being polite. Because they're nice Christians, they don't want to offend you. It's actually not a very nice word in the original language. Uh, it literally means, how do I say it without being too rude from the front? Uh, it was, well, that's crap, yes, but even a more, yeah, excrement and rotting food together in the hot sun after a couple of days. It's that stench that, that makes you involuntarily vomit. It's, it's a rude word that means that. So what's going on here? Why is Paul kind of firstly lauding his amazing spiritual resume, which is quite impressive, and then referring it to a steaming pile of rotten dog poo? Because Paul knows, and this is quite a crucial insight that he gives us, that it's not just our sin that is the problem. Now, our sin definitely is a huge problem. But what makes matters worse is that our attempts to be righteous, that is, to fix the problem, never work. The best they can be is a pile of dog poop, says Paul. See, there are, there are basically two human approaches to the problem of sin and evil. 
One is to the kind of non-religious approach, which says there is actually no sin, there is no evil, there's no problem, there's no need to fix it. Humans are either morally good or there's no idea of good at all. And it's, I reckon it's kind of hard to hold that view for any length of time when you actually look at what's happening in our world without feeling like, oof, no evil, no good, no justice. The other option is the religious option, which says, yes, no sin and evil, definitely problems. I can see that on the news every time I turn my TV on or, or read the internet. And what we need is people to find a moral code that they can follow, to say, I can fix this, we can fix this, if we just follow the way of loving and caring for people. And say, look at my spiritual resume. These are the things I need to put on there. I can be a righteous, religious person. And we can fix these problems together if we just work hard enough. That's what religion says. And what Paul says is, is something radical. He says, yes, sin is a problem. But, and humanly speaking, I've got the best spiritual resume ever. But even that won't work. Religion won't work. See, the things on Paul's resume aren't actually necessarily bad things. Some of them are actually very good things. They just don't fix the problem. And so what we see here is there is a deeper problem than we first imagined. It's not just that things are wrong and evil, absolutely. It's that we can't fix it. Our attempts to be righteous don't fix the problem. And Paul says, look, if I can't solve it, no one can. So what's the solution? And his solution is to remind the Philippian church and to remind us that Christ can. See in verse 8? What is more, I consider everything a loss because what? Of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I lost all things and consider garbage that I may gain Christ. That little phrase there, surpassing worth, literally means the super thing. The super thing. His spiritual achievements are the crap thing. Literally. What Christ has done is the super thing. Knowing Jesus Christ. And that little word knowing there too is really, really important. It's not just intellectual knowledge. That's our Western idea of the word knowledge. It comes from the Greek understanding of knowledge to understand something. Now, the Hebrew, the kind of Jewish thought behind that word is far more relational. So if I was to say Wayne is full of knowledge, we'd say, well, he obviously knows lots of things. He might have a good understanding of philosophy. He can sold a wordle in what three goes, Wayne, at least, if not two. Sometimes two, he says, right? Flex right there from Wayne at the front. He doesn't even post it on Facebook. He just knows that he's going to get it in two or three. That's what we kind of think of knowledge. But, but when the Bible says to know someone... It's a relational term, not an intellectual term, primarily. Now, there is obviously things to know about God, but it's saying, no, no, to know God and to know Jesus is to have a deep and close and personal relationship. It's closer to the word, really, communion than intellectual knowledge when Paul says, I want to know Christ. And once again, this is all through the Old Testament. Just to give you one example, it is from Jeremiah 31, 34, where Jeremiah here writes, No longer will they teach their neighbour and say to another, say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
Why? For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, forgiveness and removing of sin is not an intellectual thing, it's a relational thing. They will know me, why? Because I'll give them some information. No, they will know me because their sins are forgiven. We will be restored in relationship. That's, that is what Paul means by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying here to us is, look, if you truly want to know Christ, it's not know about him, but know him, have that beautiful, fulfilled life, deeply loved and embraced in communion with God, life to the full, you can't just merely have Jesus as a teacher or a role model or an interesting figure. And by the way, he is all those, uh, all those three things. We actually need him as a saviour. It's not enough to have him just as those three things. It, it, basically, he must be the only thing on our spiritual resume. That's it. One line. Jesus Christ. So how does this work? How do we, how do we get that, that kind of resume? Well, Paul kind of helps us understand this from verse 9 and following with this key idea of righteousness. This is the best picture I could find of righteousness uh, online that was not copyrighted. It kind of looks right. You kind of get the vibe, right? Now, one of the problems with the word... There are two problems with the word righteousness. The first one is it's one of those religious words that's kind of hard to nail down. And secondly, in the original language, we actually have to use two English words to translate the one Greek word. It's from the same family as words as the word justified or justification in Greek. We have to use the word righteous or righteousness and justification. It all kind of gets mixed up together. So we're going to have a fun language and grammar uh, session, just very briefly. And I promise you it'll be fun. I'm doing my best here to be fun. I know it's, what, 5 o'clock, 5.30 and we're, we're fading, but let's get there. I want you to imagine if we said to... Who's someone I can pick on who'd be happy with me to pick on? Steve. Steve will be happy because he's a member of staff. He has to be happy. <laughs> Steve, you are very righteous. He's nodded. That's right. <laughs> Got tickets on himself. When we say that, right, someone said, you are very righteous. Culturally, in our Western culture, we generally think it means self-righteous, doesn't it? Kind of got a big head, think they're all that. Right? that that's not what the kind of word means here. There's an element there a little bit, but we're kind of missing it if we think that's what it is. Uh, the word, once again, is much closer to a relational word than having a big head. There's a deep relational aspect. It means that you are okay or right in the obligations of a relationship. So if I say Steve is righteous or in a right relationship with me, there is nothing preventing this relationship. There's no errors or there's no sin. We have a good, healthy and proper relationship. It's a righteous relationship. It's the relationship as it should be. We have fulfilled all the obligations. There's, there's nothing separating us. And the word justification uh, means not so much as to make a righteous person as part of their character, more about restoring a righteous relationship. So rather than making one person nice, it's saying, here's a relationship that's not quite right, it's not a righteous relationship. To justify that relationship means, ah, we've dealt with the issue that was between those two people. And it's now a righteous relationship. That is what justification means. It's kind of a, like a legal declaration. When the judge says, not guilty, or the, the, the fine has been paid, the thing that was causing the, the, the tension, it's gone. 
Okay, that's, now, that, by the way, there are PhDs upon PhDs written on this, and I've just touched the surface. I just want to give you a bit of a taste. So when we look at verse 9 together, we kind of know what Paul's saying, and what Paul does in verse 9 is contrast two different types of righteousness, if you can, if you can notice as we read together. So verse 9 says this, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. We've got it behind me. There we go. Did you capture the two different types of righteousness? One is what we call now, or in this kind of modern parlay, locally foraged righteousness, locally sourced. We know we're into this kind of local source stuff. Haven't go too far. That is the one which is the righteousness of my own. I haven't had to go anywhere else. I've tried to make myself righteousness, says Paul, by following the law, doing what the law says, that makes me a right person, a righteous person. The other one is the outsourced righteousness, or more technically it's called theologically the alien righteousness. It's righteousness from outside. That is the righteousness that comes not from Paul, but from God. And it's his on the basis of faith in Christ. And that little word faith, by the way, when we read about faith in the Bible, it's not just believing that something is true, it's trusting it. It's true and I'm going to put my faith, trust in what it says. So how do we, how do we kind of tear this out? Well, I've hopefully got a picture. This picture didn't work this morning and I hope we'll see if it works now. Behold, it worked! Oh, that's exciting. I'm probably more excited than you are, by the way. Uh, I think I am more excited than you are, by the way. Uh, here we have... Uh, a pictorial version for you visual learners of what Paul is talking about. We've got the alien or outsourced righteousness there on the left with Ned and then on the locally sourced righteousness on the right with Ned part two. And what Paul is saying is righteousness from God, the, the one he's speaking about is the one on the left where God says to you, you are righteous. We, we are okay. You are, you are my child. And we say, I am in a right relationship with God. The one on the other side is the locally sourced, locally foraged version of righteousness. And this is the one that sometimes we tend to go by, where God says, well, I'm going to make you righteous. And together with God, we work really, really hard and, and we grow. And in Paul's case, through the law, we then become righteous. Can you see the difference between the two? The left-hand side is a declaration. God says, you are righteous. The right-hand side is a quality that someone has in their life that God works with them to kind of build and grow and develop. But Paul is saying your righteousness is the left and not the right. Now, just to pause there because the one on the right is actually part of the Christian life, by the way. It's what we call, the fancy word is sanctification. That is God's work in your life by His Spirit to make you more like Jesus. Um, that is definitely part of the Christian life. But that flows from the first one. The righteousness that comes through faith is not God saying, look, I'm going to improve you until you reach the point where you're acceptable to me, until your resume is good enough when your righteousness has reached the right level, then I'll say, you are my child, I love you. Now, your righteousness does not depend 
on what God is doing in you, which is still his work, but what God has done already for you on the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. It's really important. We can see there's a subtle difference between those two, but it's really, really important. And what this means is that right now you can hear the Judgment Day declaration by our Lord Jesus Christ. Will he say, welcome into my kingdom. Look at your great resume. The way you've grown in your righteousness. It's been really good over the last 10 years, John. Well done. He's going to say, no, you are someone for whom Christ has died. Welcome into my kingdom. In other words, God looks at not our resume, but at somebody else's resume. And it's not John Dixon's, by the way. It's someone far more impressive. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You are found in him, as Paul says in verse 9. You are found in him. Not in your own abilities, but in him. And so I want us to come back to that very exercise. Remember the exercise we did about an hour ago, what it feels like now? Where I said, you know, write down how you feel on a number or a scale. See, friends, the answer is always 10 out of 10. It is always excellent. It is always 100%. There is, there is no variation. Why? And the answer is because your relationship with God is not based on how you are going. It is based on what Christ has done. Now, you might be going well, and I pray that you are. That's part of your growth as a Christian. But whether you've had a bad week or a good week, whether you spent hours in prayer each week or you came to church grumpy and upset and late, 10 out of 10, because Christ has taken your resume and given you his. And friends, I think there's only a small uh, body of Christians who kind of live this out. We keep looking into our spiritual performance as the reason that we, we base our security, our confidence. We keep looking at our own resume. But Paul says, no, look at Christ. There's a fantastic book by a guy called Richard Lovelace, which is a great name. Uh, he wrote the book 40 years ago, and it's still an absolute ripper. It's called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And he addresses this issue, and he says he thinks there are three general types of people. He's addressing uh, a Christian church. He says the first type of people, these type of people, have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and the guilt and extent of their own sin that consciously they see little need for God's righteousness. Though below the surface of their lives, they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. So friends, is that you? If so, be found in Christ. Receive that gift of grace and love and mercy. Well, maybe you're the second type of people. Uh, Richard Lovelace writes, many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine. But in their day-to-day -day lives, they rely on their, sa their sanctification, that is, becoming more like Jesus, for their justification, being declared right by God. And they draw their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity or their past experience of conversion or their recent religious experience or the relative infrequency of their conscience and willful disobedience. These are the kind of people who use questions like, how's your quiet time going? To gauge their standing before God. 
I wonder if that's you. If so, remember your resume should read two words. Jesus Christ. Lovelace goes on to write, Few of us enough know to start each day with a thoroughgoing understanding that you are accepted looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only grounds of acceptance and relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce an increasing sanctification as faith is active and love in love and gratitude. I wonder if that's you. See, friends, it's so important that we understand where our confidence and assurance lies. And Paul in Philippians 3 has painted us a beautiful picture that it doesn't depend on us, which I'm so thankful for, because my spiritual life, from my perspective anyway, does this. It's up and down. Highly volatile market, my spiritual life. When I look to Christ, I can be absolutely and completely confident that I am found in Him. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, which is a prayer, and as our our musos come up, that reminds us of this beautiful and powerful truth, that when we survey the wondrous cross, we realise that our richest gain we count but loss. And that we pour contempt on all our pride. For it is Christ and Christ alone on whom we depend. So friends, with that great truth, let us 